Hello everyone, and welcome to our last Sabbath School commentary on this quarter's series of lessons on the book of Daniel. It's been a huge blessing to study the book of Daniel with you guys, and I hope that today will be a blessing for you and for me uh, as well. And so let's just jump right into this week's lesson study. It's in Daniel chapter 12. We're not going to go day by day, but we will cover a lot of the things that the lesson covered. Notice with me, Daniel chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1. We'll start reading right from the top of Daniel chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. I'm going to stop right there. I want you to notice something with me. Back in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice with me. Daniel 1 and verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Daniel 2 and verse 1. Notice this. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of vision appeared to me. Daniel 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Daniel 10 in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Daniel 11 in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. Daniel 12. We just read verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. It's interesting that in the book of Daniel, there are apocalyptic prophecies that extend from the time of Daniel to the very end of the world that track the course of nations until the setting up of God's kingdom. That at the beginning of each section or each chapter in the book of Daniel, an earthly king is mentioned, a human king, a pagan king. And now here in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, a human king is not mentioned, a human priest is not mentioned, but rather a divine king is mentioned, Michael. Now this name Michael in the original language means one who is like God. Now notice this, a ruler, a great prince who stands guard over the sons of Daniel's people, Michael, who's like God, stands up. Notice that. In um, Daniel chapter 7, the lesson points this out too. And this is something that came to my mind before I even studied the quarterly lesson for the week. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you have this person mentioned called uh, one like the son of man. And he comes to the ancient of days and is presented 
before him. Now, this is in the context of the judgment that was set in, in verse 10. Now, notice, the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. Sounds like Jesus, our advocate. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language would serve him. So the, the judgment is for the saints of God. This one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days in the context of a pre-Advent judgment scene. And Jesus, when he was on earth, always called himself the Son of Man. This is Jesus, our advocate. So there is indication from the book of Daniel that this Michael is the same person as this Son of Man. He's standing up for Daniel's people, for righteous people, for genuine believers. And this word stand in Daniel 12 and verse 1 is a word that denotes standing up for or standing in defense of, standing to protect. It also has the connotation of judgment, standing in judgment on behalf of. Well, that's what the Son of Man is doing in Daniel chapter 7. So get that in your mind. There is a clear connection between this Michael, one who is like God, who stands up for uh, the people of God at the end of time, and this Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And as I mentioned, Jesus is often heard saying in the Gospels that he's the Son of Man, referring to himself as the Son of Man. Well, why would he do that? Well, because he saw himself as the Son of Man in, from the book of Daniel. Further to this, Jesus said, uh, the Father, in John 5, he says, the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So Michael, one who is like God, he stands in defense of, he stands in judgment for the people of God at the end of time. And so it's interesting, as I mentioned already, and I want to emphasize this because it's just such a cool point, that at the beginning of each section in the book of Daniel, an earthly king is mentioned, an earthly ruler is mentioned, but in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, a heavenly ruler is mentioned, Jesus, one who is like God, who stands up for us. This is a powerful truth and a powerful message. Now, there are a lot of other indications in the Bible that Michael and Jesus are the same person. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has taken a bit of heat from people who would like to smear us for our fundamental beliefs uh, because we have historically uh, believed as a community of faith that Michael and Jesus were the same person, and they try to lump us into the um, those who do not affirm Jesus as fully divine. So they'll say, oh, those Adventists, they have the same beliefs about Jesus as those Jehovah's Witnesses. And they try to lump us in with people who do not accept the full divinity of Jesus. But our response is really simple. And that is that God himself in the Old Testament, the great I am, is oftentimes identified as the angel of the Lord. The word angel just simply means messenger. So when we say that Jesus is Michael the archangel, we're not trying to reduce him down to the status of angel. We're just simply saying that he's the messenger that comes from God. He's uh, one who is like God, who represents God, who speaks on behalf of God. And of course, we affirm that he's God too. So for us, it's not he's either Michael the archangel or he's the fully divine creator God of the universe. For us, it's both. For us, it's, it's totally both. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, who also believe that Michael and Jesus are the same person, they just think that he's a created being. They wouldn't say the words created. They would say he's a begotten being. But whatever, if you have an origin, if you have a beginning, 
you're created. So, um, but we Seventh-day Adventists, we affirm the fact that Jesus is fully divine, but yet that he is Michael the Archangel because there's so much indication in the texts of Scripture that point us in that direction that we just accept it, even if some of our Sunday-keeping brothers and sisters kind of mock us and scoff us for that. Not that they mock us, but they kind of do, some, some kind of do, and try to just denigrate our, our belief system because we identify Michael as Jesus. And now, in 2 Thessalonians, you'll remember uh, chapter 4, verse 16, that very, very popular Seventh-day Adventist, Second Coming passage of Scripture. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now think about that, okay? Who, who, who himself will descend from heaven with a shout? The Lord himself. He'll, he'll descend from heaven with a shout, with also the voice of the archangel. Now that's, that's interesting. The Lord is coming from heaven shouting, and he has the voice of the archangel. And then it says, the dead in Christ rise first. Now just get that in your head. The Lord is descending the archangel is shouting, and the dead in Christ are rising first. And then it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, in John chapter 5, in verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Now, Jesus, when he says his voice, he's talking about himself. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. So interesting. You have Jesus saying that everyone in the grave will hear his voice and come out of the grave. He's talking about the resurrection. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 is saying that the Lord Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ are going to be raised. So back in Daniel chapter 12, notice this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, now at that time is like at the, in the context of the very end of time, uh, when there is judgment and the final events of this world are going down. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to degrade, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay, there you have it. Uh, Michael standing up for his people at the very end of time, and then the idea being mentioned of his people being rescued because they're found in the book of God, and then this resurrection. And so, Second Thessalonians chapter, sorry, First Thessalonians chapter four, John chapter five. And Daniel chapter 12, you see a lot of symmetry between those texts. And there is an intermingling of uh, the Michael and Jesus in all of those texts, which strongly infers that Jesus and Michael are one and the same person. Further to this, and this is just the last quick thought. This is just Matt's thinking about the subject. And there's so much more from the Bible that we could point to, but this is not a study on Michael. I'm just making uh, as strong of a case in the time that I have uh, that Michael is Jesus standing up for his people at the end of the time, the same figure as the son of man of Daniel chapter seven. But 
Jesus is the Word of God, okay? He is the embodiment of God's kingdom, okay? Now, a word is an expressed thought, okay? So, Jesus is the one, is the person who expresses God's thoughts, both in his actions and in his words, okay? So, Jesus is the word. He's the communicative agent of the divine family who comes down and manifests himself in human physical form. So, in the book of Revelation chapter 12, it says there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fight, and they don't prevail, and neither is there a place found for them anymore in heaven. Now, if this Michael is Jesus, then Jesus is leading the angels in heaven against the satanic rebellion prior to the creation of this world. So, and, and into the creation of this world as well. The conflict continues. But I just wanted to say that uh, it, it would make perfect sense to me to call Jesus, uh, th that Jesus prior to his incarnation as a human being would be given the title Michael, the archangel, for, for two reasons. Okay. Number one, the word angel just simply means messenger. Okay. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, God himself is called the angel of the Lord at times. Uh, so the word angel in a generic sense means a, a messenger. So God can be an angel. People can be an angel in the sense that they can be messengers. That God can be a messenger. People can be messengers. And angels are called angels. The, the beings that we call angels are called angels because they're specifically designated to be God's messengers. Okay. So point number one, Jesus can be called Michael the archangel because he is... Uh, a messenger. He is an angel, and that, that he mess he's, he brings messages. Um, Ark means the prince. He's the prince of the angels, and he himself is an angel. In that, he, he manifests himself in the, a form that angels could relate to. Yet he is one who is like God. So, to me, I guess I guess this is kind of what I'm saying. Just if I can summarize here real quickly, it no more downgrades Jesus to understand that he communicated prior to the creation of this world to angels in the form of an angel than it does to accept that, that, that God himself became a human being. Jesus from Nazareth. Does this make sense? So uh, it makes sense to me that the one from the divine family, the second person of the divine family who became Jesus, who, who incarnated himself as Jesus from Nazareth, a human being, manifested himself as an angel to angels prior to creation of the world. So those are a bunch of thoughts T take them or leave them, critique them, send me an email, tell me all about your thoughts there. Uh, and if you like those points, okay, so Michael stands for the people in verse one, a time of distress such as never has occurred is mentioned. And it says that he will stand at that time for everyone who was found written in the book and that they'll be rescued. And then it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And then in verse 3 it says, and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens, and those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Okay, so let's just talk about this book of life. Now, the lesson brings out, and this is a really good point worth talking about for a minute, it, the lesson brings out that some people have an issue with the idea that there are books 
that the Bible mentions. And there's a, there's a list of texts in Monday's lesson that refer to books and the lesson divides them into two categories. The one, the book of life, and the other books, books that record the acts and feelings and experiences of human beings. Books of record. So you've got the books of record, and you've got the books of life. And these books are also referenced in Daniel chapter 7 and as being opened in this pre-Advent investigative judgment that is prophesied of right there in the text. Now, as I said, the lesson brings up that some people don't like the idea because in their mind it seems incongruous with the notion that you're saved by grace and that Jesus is enough and that he's provided atonement for you and if you believe in him, you're saved and you're justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So they see incongruity there and that causes a little discomfort and they don't know how to kind of balance the tension that's created from this idea that the Bible teaches that there's a book of life and that there's books of record, yet at the same time you're justified by, by, by faith and, and freely have we received so we can freely give and this wonderful teaching of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works lest anybody should boast. And so I just want to make a very simple point and just move on from here. Uh, if we believe that God honors free will, we shouldn't have a problem with the idea that people's acts are recorded and then brought into judgment in a final judgment prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We do not believe that the Bible teaches that God has determined that some would be saved and that some would be lost. We believe, and rightly so, that God honors free will, that part of being made in the image of God uh, is being a free moral being who can choose. Now, we don't fully understand how uh, free will works, and when we don't really know how to, uh, we don't know where the line between our natural instincts and our genetic tendencies kind of comes to the border of we can choose, but we believe in free will and the ability to choose. And if we believe in that, which we should, then there's no problem in believing that there's a record of our works and deeds and actions that comes into play in the final judgment. Because really all a book of our, uh, that records our actions and behaviors and the history of our lives in is doing is communicating our choice. That's it. And so, um, the Bible teaches very clearly that we are judged according to our works. It does not teach that we're judged by our works. We talked about this a lot previously in this lesson's, uh, in, in, I think it's in the, in the lesson on Daniel 8, but I just wanted to mention it now because I think it's, it's, a, it's a powerful point that can't be made enough. To be judged according to your works is just to be judged according to what you chose. It's just that simple. And God honors free will. And so the investigative judgment before the heavenly intelligences is all about showing the universe what we have really chosen and showing them in a way that they could have otherwise not seen and could have not known. So God's going to help them to know in ways that they couldn't have known by opening the books and, and educating them as to why and how and who, in what. It's only fair, it's consistent with the character of God, his character of love and condescension, and so it makes perfect sense to me. So uh, 
We're justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Amen. We have been reconciled in Christ 2,000 years ago. Amen. Uh, if we believe that, then we're saved. If we disbelieve that, we're lost. And the, and the works of the combined works of our life show whether or not we did believe, truly, genuinely. Did we choose? Did we not choose? Uh, well, that's determined and that's seen. That's really simple, and I hope that that makes sense. I want to make one point here in regards to the stars that shine. Uh, it's interesting to me how it, it, this is one of the coolest verses in the Bible that I have never preached. It says that those who have insight will shine brightly. And then it says, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Interesting. So there's a corollary between those who have insight and those who lead many to righteousness. They both shine. Now, I have discovered personally that the more I work for the salvation of others, the more I sympathize with God and the more I am open to the Spirit's work in my own life. It takes me personally, and maybe not some of you guys out there because you're perfectly holy and sanctified, but it takes me uh, effort and sacrifice. And in a way, it takes me dying to myself to do evangelism, to do soul winning ministry. Just because I'm the evangelism director of this conference or get to serve in that capacity, it doesn't mean that I'm naturally uh, inclined to serve others and, and sacrifice for others so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth. I have to, we all have to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses in order to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. And I, I think in the world, there's lots of people who are willing to deny themselves and pick up a cross so that they can accomplish some great things for themselves and become important in this world. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow him. And where's he going? He's going to the cross to die for people. And he's going to serve people through a life of evangelistic ministry where he implements uh, physical ministry uh, in order to reach people's hearts and minds. And, and uh, he's just got this power-packed ministry of just connecting with people on a human level and ministering to their needs and, and preaching the gospel through all of that. He never, he never separates the two. But I'm, I'm making the point that the more we follow Jesus and become his disciples as soul, and, and, and do soul-winning ministry, the more we become like Jesus. So it's a part of God's plan that we participate with him in the ministry of evangelism because in doing so, we become more like him. The Bible says the liberal soul or the generous, generous soul will be made fat and he who waters will be watered himself. Further to this, there is an Luke chapter 11, that story of the person who has, has no food. And since they have no food and they have a guest coming, they go to their neighbor and beg for food so that they can have some food to give to a guest who's coming over to their house. And this is typifying individuals who feel the responsibility and burden to share Christ and share scriptural truth with people around them. But they know, they realize that they don't have anything really worth giving that can sustain people and save them. And so they're forced to go to God and get from God all that they need to give to other people. So when you put yourself in the position of, hey, I'm the light of the world. Hey, I'm an ambassador. Hey, 
I am called to be a witness. Hey, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you, when you accept that, when you, take, when you accept that responsibility as a disciple of Christ, well, then now you realize your need to deeply connect with God so you have something to give to the world. But if you don't need to, to communicate truth to the world because you don't feel any burden or responsibility, well, then guess what? You're not going to be pursuing knowledge. You're not going to be pursuing the power of God. You're not going to be pursuing uh, wisdom from God as you otherwise would had you not had you accepted that responsibility hope that all makes sense and so the by the text says if you don't like what i just uh communicated i I was just trying to communicate what extends out of this passage of scripture uh you can just affirm the text and say amen it says those who have insight will shine and then it says those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever so you want to shine like a star forever Let's get busy doing what we can to lead many to righteousness. And if we don't feel a burden, let's pray that God would give us a burden. I mean, just think about a house burning down and people having the opportunity to save individuals who are in that house, children, babies, but they just casually stand outside and don't feel a burden to go in the house and do what they can to save people because you know what? They're not firefighters. Um, You know, that would make me feel pretty upset if I had children in a house and my house was burning and my next door neighbor could have run into the house and save my children and they had that opportunity they realized they had that opportunity but they decided that they wouldn't do it that they wouldn't care to do it because you know they're not firemen they're not professionally trained firemen um sometimes god needs people who aren't professionals to get busy in doing ministry and doing outreach and proclaiming christ and, and realizing that they are called to do that. That, that. that is their calling. That's all of our calling to some degree, to some extent, through the vocation that we practice. You know, you're not a plumber or a lawyer or a doctor. You're a missionary. You're, you're a Christ-following, Christ-proclaiming evangelist. And uh, you're doing that through your vocation. So you're not defined by your vocation. You're defined by Jesus and your children of God, your sons and daughters of God, your light's of your lights of the world, your, your mouthpiece, you're the body of Christ. That's what you are. And that's the word of God is what defines you, not your career, not your vocation. And you shouldn't be limited by your vocation and say, well, you know, I can't lead anyone to righteousness because I'm just a plumber or whatever. No, you're a child of God and you're called by God to be his body and his mouth and his eyes and his hands and everything. So just keep that in mind out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and you are all witnesses. I hope that we can accept that responsibility, that truth. And, um, I, I as a person who's done evangelistic outreach for 20 years, <laughs> I realize I think more than anyone else that any success I've ever attained came because of the grace of God and a willingness on my part to just put myself out there and die for the sake of someone else. People ask me all the time about methods and formulas and secrets. Well, all I know is that all the success I ever obtained when I was doing full-time evangelism and Bible work and outreach ministry, and that's all that I did in life before I sat in an office. Um, I just remember all the success, all the success I achieved, it came because I sacrificed myself for someone. That's the secret for success is doing whatever it takes, learning whatever it takes, figuring out whatever approach it takes, learning to adapt and overcome and having a deep and profound burden for the sake of God's children and uh, maybe if we don't have a burden, maybe we're not converted. 
I want to now jump down with you guys to verse 9. In verse 9, Daniel's being spoken to, and this is what he hears. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end. Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. I wrote down this little question when I was reading through the lesson study. And the lesson does elaborate on this to an extent, but in a different way than I'm going to. The question I wrote down is, why? Why is Daniel's, why are Daniel's words concealed and sealed up until the end of time? Well, to the best of my knowledge, it's because prophecy cannot be fully understood until you have lived through the period of time that the prophecy was discussing or relating to. This verse, Daniel 12 and verse 9, advocates for what we call the historicist view of prophetic interpretation. There are three views of prophetic interpretation. The historicist view, the preterist view, and the futurist view. Now, the preterist view, in in short, just bunches all of the apocalyptic prophecies into the past. This view basically says the prophecies were not actual prophecies at all. They were just cleverly communicated historical events. And so the preterist just lumps all the prophecy, basically thrusts all the prophecies back into antiquity. Now the futurist does the exact opposite. They see all the prophecies having yet future fulfillment. Some of them think that it's in a time post-second coming, post-secret rapture, or whatnot. Now, the historicist, on the other hand, sees the apocalyptic prophecies covering large portions of history. So they would just see prophecy as history given to us in advance so that we could understand the times in which we live and the issues with which we have to involve ourselves and deal with. So it makes sense to me that this verse is affirming the idea of historicism. Why? Because it's saying the prophecies of Daniel will not be able to be understood until the end. Why? Because at the end, you have a historical perspective. You can look back and you can line up the prophecies with, with historical facts. So history is prophecy fulfilled and prophecy is history in advance. That's, that view comes from the idea of historicism, that large historical time frames are being covered through the prophecies. So the prophecies can lead us through the corridors of time and give us insight and understanding. Why, once again, could Daniel's prophecies not be understood until the end? Why is his book sealed until the end? Well, it's because they are outlining historical events ahead of time that cannot be understood until that time has passed. And then you look back and you look into the prophecy and you say, whoa, the prophecy perfectly, like perfectly described history before it happened. Now, the reason why God would do things like this is because because he wants to guide you through time. He wants to guide his people because he loves people. So he wants them to have an an ongoing record 
of what's about to happen. I kind of put it like this. If I can look back and see God predicted in the ancient past a certain amount of historical events that are now past to me, then now I can look forward and trust what he says about the future. Okay? So that's the value of historicism. I don't know what value you could find in preterism, really. Oh, yeah. Like, just think about it. Like, oh, yeah, someone just, like, decided to cleverly write down ancient historical events in symbolic terms and pawn it off on us as prophecy. Like, okay, yeah, all right, what, what use is that? Just chuck out the book of Daniel, chuck out the book of Revelation, chuck out all of the apocalyptic visions found in Scripture as a whole, and then just doubt all of the Bible basically. <laughs> like there's just no use to preterism. And uh, futurism as a, as, a, as a school of thought, um, yeah, like where's the starting point? Like, and how do you determine the starting point? And I mean, yeah, who knows? Like really, just, just lump everything into the future. And how then do you understand the prophecies and their symbols? And anyways, like, yeah, look, more could be said, but for the sake of time, I'm going to cut my uh, my explanation short here. I'll just mention to you guys that the lesson uh, points out these time frames in Daniel chapter 12, the times, the time, times, and the dividing of time uh, spoken of, the 1290 days spoken of, and the 1335 uh, days that are spoken of as well. And does does a good job, a simple job. I'm not going to spend much time talking about or discussing that. Uh, at this time for the sake of time, I just want to leave you guys with just a couple exhortations. Number one, uh, Jesus is standing for us right now and he cares for us and he's protective over us and he is in our, in God's presence on our behalf and the books are being opened and that's a sobering truth, a hundred percent, but we're comforted. We're bring we're brought solace by the fact that Jesus loves us with an everlasting love and God has given us everything that he possibly could have given us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's a merciful and faithful high priest who has walked the road that we're all walking as a, as a full-fledged human being. And, and he knows how to minister on our behalf. He sends us the Holy Ghost. He sends us encouragement and guidance and blessing. And he stands in front of God's presence on our behalf. And we have access to the power of God. We have access to the throne of God through Jesus. And he stands up for us. He stands to deliver us. And through the most hellacious times that this world has ever seen, he's going to be with us, standing for us in judgment. And we don't have to fear those who can destroy the body, but afterwards cannot destroy the soul. We can fear and respect and reverence the one who destroys both body and soul in hell because he stands for us. He died for us. He lives for us always to intercede on our behalf, to save us and to reconcile us. And we just have to believe. We just have to trust. We just have to commit to in a real and meaningful way. And I take courage in that and I hope that you do too. I like to protect my sons. I'm sure you like to protect your children. And when you have good natural instincts, you know, good natural affection, you want to protect those who you care for. And the feelings we have for those that we love are just reflections of the feelings that God has for us, that Jesus has for us, and the great prince is standing for us now. That's good news. And there is going to be a time of distress such as has never occurred. And I've thought about this a lot, and there's not a ton I want to say for the sake of time, 
and I just passed over it when we were going through the texts, but one of the reasons why I believe that the time of trouble that's going to come upon the earth is going to be worse than any time of trouble that has ever come on the earth since the beginning of time, since, since there was ever a nation, is that it's going to be universal. So every time a nation collapsed, an ancient nation collapsed, and horrific things transpired, and grave injustices were committed, and, and millions of people died of famine, and plague, and pestilence, and violence. Whenever that happened, it was local to one particular nation. But the time of trouble that's coming on the world is going to be universal. It's going to be universal in its scope. And so it's going to be a greater time of trouble than any time of trouble that has ever happened on this planet since there was a nation. Because it's going to happen to the whole world. So the entire community of nations on the planet is going to go through this time of trouble. Uh, second to that, there has never been a time in Earth's history where so many people have had it so good. And so just, just imagine if you're a Near Eastern Jewish person, even in the best of times, life for you would have been harder than it is for a homeless person in Australia right now. Like seriously. Um, and and not, not, not everyone, maybe not an aristocratic figure or a king or a noble, but for the average peasant, just, just slaving away in some, you know, menial uh, life, like, yeah, their life was tough and pain-filled. They didn't have social welfare. They didn't have universal medical care. They didn't have modern comforts and conveniences and running water. I mean, those people knew how to endure. They were tough. They were gnarly. And so when a time of trouble comes and there's death and misery and famine, well, they know what it's like to be hungry. They know what it's like to be cold. They know what it's like to, to have want, to not have enough clothes, to not have enough uh, water and you know these these are people who know how to walk for miles and days and in search of food and and support and you know so when times of trouble would envelop nations in the past it was enveloping people who were very durable and strong and tough but when it envelops us oh what's the reaction going to be I mean we're so sensitive uh, and we're so soft and so comfort driven that when our air conditioning goes out we're about to have a conniption fit you know and so this time of trouble that's going to be greater than any time of trouble. It's going to be greater in scope because it's going to be universal. And it's going to be happening to a lot of people who have never, ever, ever had to endure the kinds of difficulties and challenges that people in a primitive setting, uh, even people today in primitive settings, have to endure. But guess what? Michael stands for us. He stands for his people. And those who are used to denying themselves and picking up their crosses and following Jesus are going to be habituated to continue to do that at that time. Lastly, um, those who have insight will shine. Those who have insight will shine. And those who bring many to salvation will shine. And so, I don't know. I just want to encourage you guys to shine. Um, shine now. Um, the darkness is coming, and, and in the darkness, you see who's really bright, who's really shining. We as a country, uh, we as a, not as a country, we as a civilization, as, as, as members of Western civilization, are going through a tough time with the coronavirus and all of the implications. And uh, we have an opportunity to shine. And when things get dark, the, a candle in the room gets a lot more bright. And so um, let's, let's shine for Jesus. Let's shine for God. He's standing for us. And uh, we should stand for him now uh, more than ever. People are, are open. 
people are searching, people are seeking, and now's the time to capitalize on this tragic event. And I don't mean that in the, in, in the it sounds bad to say that, but I don't mean capitalize in a selfish sense, but take advantage of this horrible situation and do what we can to bring some good out of it. God bless you guys. All the best to you. Happy Sabbath. We'll see you soon. Bye.